we would mess with uh, Americans a lot. American tourists would come by and they'd say, hey, well, what, what army are you with? And I'd tell them I was with the Polish army or make something up or whatever. And they go, really? Wow, you speak really good English. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss a single episode. Richard Blevins enlisted aged 18 in the US Army in March of 1987. He completed basic training and military police school training in July of 87 and was posted to West Berlin in the United States Military Police. He describes his selection for Berlin duty while at Rhein-Main Air Force Base and his first journey across East Germany on the US duty train to West Berlin. Richard's first year consisted of patrol duties and combat training as well as serving at checkpoints Bravo and Charlie as the assistant to the non-commissioned officer in charge. He also got selected as a traffic accident investigator in 1988, where he would patrol with the West Berlin police and respond to car accidents involving US military, dependents and civilian workers, as well as West German nationals. Richard also describes how he heard on November 8, 1989, that the East German government had lifted all travel restrictions starting at midnight. Richard is a close friend of Michael Rafferty, who appeared in episode 13 with his account of the last days of Checkpoint Charlie. Don't miss Michael's video of 1980s Berlin in the episode notes. Cold War history is disappearing, but a simple monthly donation will keep this project going and allow me to continue preserving these incredible stories. You'll join our community get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hi, I'm Aid Brandt and I support the Cold War Conversations podcast financially, quite simply because it's the best history podcast out there and I want to make sure it continues. Keep going, Ian, and thank you. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Richard Blevins to our Cold War conversation. I graduated high school in 1986, and I wanted to be a police officer. Um, I also had um, an interest in the military. I attended a a military high school. It's a day school. I wasn't in a dorm or anything of that nature. Uh, So I had two years of uh, high school military, uh, what we call JRTC. And so um, I was real interested in the Army, and I wanted to be a police officer. So I said, well, Maybe I could combine them at 18, and I did so by joining the Army as a, an MP. What year was that? Uh, I joined March of 1987. Uh, I went to Fort McClellan, Alabama, which was the home of the military police um, school. And I spent about 17 weeks there. Uh, we did our basic training, what, what they call one-station unit training. Uh, so they try to, I guess, for calls purposes keep you at one post for your basic training and your AIT, your advanced individual training. So um, I went there, did the basic training part, which is about eight weeks. And we graduated on a Friday. And then Monday morning, we started MP school. And the MP school kind of consisted of the three areas of being a military police, the combat role, the law enforcement role, and the security role for uh, nuke sites and what we call physical security. So I went through the training. It was four platoons in my company, about 50 people per platoon. And 
you spent 17 weeks with the same guys and you say, well, hopefully I'll never see these guys again. And uh, when I got on my plane to go to Germany, uh, about 40 of them were on the same plane with me. So uh, we all got uh, assigned to go to Europe. And then once we um, arrived in Frankfurt at the Rhine Mine Air Force Base, there's a place called the 21st Replacement Company. It's just where they assign you to your units in Germany. When I got there, um, about 15 of us from my basic training AIT unit uh, were there, and we all got assigned to Berlin. And um, it was kind of a funny scenario. We were um, we didn't know how they were selecting people for Berlin or other units, but we were out in the lobby, and we were called in one at a time into a room, and that guy would come out or and say, hey, I got Heidelberg, or I got Berlin, or I got Stuttgart. And then we started organizing our seats to we, we try to uh, mimic a pattern of how they were getting assigned. And it was kind of funny. So uh, but that's not how they did it. It's just um, I guess they looked at your height or maybe your 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 scores or something like that. They never really told us. But um, uh, about 15 of us or so uh, from my that I went to training with in Alabama, we all uh, were assigned to the Berlin Brigade, which is where the 287th MP company is located before. You were sent to Germany. Were you given any briefing as to how to behave or what to expect? Um, No, that came later. Um, Actually, when I got into Berlin is when uh, we got a a briefing on that. Basically, when you graduated your your training, um, I was just given orders to go to Frankfurt. Didn't know where I was going to be assigned in Germany. And we flew out of South Carolina, I think in Charleston at an Air Force base there. And they had a... um, a plane there for us, and we flew straight into an Air Force base in um, Frankfurt. About three days there in Germany, really just processing in. Uh, no classes on on how to behave in Germany at that point. Uh, that only happened once I got to Berlin. How did you travel to Berlin? Uh, by the duty train. So we got on a bus at the Rhein-Main Air Force Base. Um, that was the first time I actually went into the outside into the the economy is what we usually call it of of germany we left the, the base for the first time and went to the train station um someone just basically dropped us off and said here's the platform you need to meet at and there's the window when they open up and you'll get on this train and they'll take you to berlin i didn't know it was a military train i didn't know it was i didn't know what kind of train it was um didn't know that it had to go through certain corridors or you know that we're going through enemy territory which would be East Germany. Um, just didn't really realize any of that. Had my first beer in the train station at Frankfurt Bahnhof Station, uh, which was interesting. So, um, which we weren't we weren't supposed to, but we all got one beer at least, and you know waited around. And uh, typical military hurry up and wait. So we got there early, and the train only leaves at night. So we probably were there early in the morning, and we stayed in the train station all day until uh, the uh, ticket box opened for the duty train. And then we um, boarded the train around 6 p.m. or 7 p.m., some, somewhere in the evening time. So you weren't sort of aware of the geography of Germany and where Berlin was located? Yeah, I had a, I had a good idea where it was, but I didn't – at 18, I didn't realize the, you know, the impact of what was fixing to happen. I knew I was in Germany. I knew that there was a Warsaw Pact. We've learned all that, you know, even growing up, you know, with the Cold War and, uh, and through high school and stuff. So I had an idea that – what I was getting into, but I didn't realize, you know, the the details of how to get to Berlin, you know, and, and that this is very monitored to get there and you had to go through Russian checkpoints. That that was kind of what I was getting to. I didn't know that was going to be taking place. 
And what was that experience like going through those checkpoints the first time? Well, we were on the train. First time I've been overseas, and, and I think probably my colleagues were too. There was uh, two or three MPs that work what they call rail duty, and uh, they were in our unit. But um, So they were fascinated by this number of, of individuals, what we call, you know, we were all privates. So they were excited that that many privates were coming to their company because it was kind of a first time in a while that they've gotten a, a large number of, of new troops in the 287th MP company. So they were a little fascinated with us and asked us questions and kind of, you know, gave us the, you know, hey, I've been there and you know, this is what you're going to expect. And some try to scare you a little bit, you know, and, you know, you know be careful of this and that, or you're going to have a great time and just kind of just joke it with you a little bit. When we got to the uh, first stop, I think it was Magdeburg, I think. I'm not maybe not pronouncing the name right, but it's the first East German city that we stopped at. We did get to peer out the windows a little bit. and You saw the Soviet uh, troops for the first time kind of walking around the train. And um, the MP that was on there, um, do not recall his name, uh, kind of gave us an, uh, an overview of what he was. his do- duty was, is to give a head count of all the people on the train to the Russians. And uh, that's about the limited information I got out of that. It's kind of you know unique because um, I just spent 17 weeks training to shoot Soviets and you know our targets look like Ivan you know the Soviets and we learned about Warsaw packed uh, aircraft armor and things of that nature how to identify them and and that was your enemy and here they are walking around your train looking at it and getting a head count of who's all you know how many people are on board and that that sort of thing so it's kind of kind of weird at that point like wow this is there's the enemy right there I didn't think I'd see them that fast what was your first impression of them did you think they were you know, for example, dress smartly or, or what did you make of them? You know, later I can tell you a little bit more of my impressions. But at that moment, um, from the angle of the train, they're, they're usually big guys. Um, every Russian soldier I, I ran into, they would put their biggest guys there. It seems like the tallest, the biggest. Uh, they Every time I saw them, they would wear a um, an overcoat and then the, um, the either the fur hat or they, if they were an officer, they had the round cap, um, what we call a service cap. So um, just kind of gray, dull looking, but big and um, just walking around and, you know, with their big high boots and the, the gray overcoats. When you arrive in Berlin, what, what are your first impressions of the city? Well, we got to the obviously it was morning time it was a night train. So we arrived in the morning and then um, we were picked up at the train station uh, where the duty train stops at. It's in the uh, south part of Berlin. Um, it was near Andrews barracks is where the uh, the the duty train would end and you know the first thing first thing i remembered um and i even to this day was the roads were, were like cobblestone roads just rocks you know i mean sorry bricks it wasn't smooth what i was used to in the, in the states where you know we got uh, paved roads and they're smooth and this is just cobblestone road and it was just one road it was but it was not all the roads in berlin were like that obviously but but the side roads and the residential roads were so we went right into a residential neighborhood and then we uh, arrived at Andrews Barracks. Uh, that's where our um, the military police um, barracks were, and um, I believe the engineers were located there, and uh, the MI unit, and then some combat support units were there as well, like the band and um, um, some other uh, things of that nature. Uh, so once we arrived on base, um, I noticed the first next thing I noticed was the um, the front of the uh, Andrews Barracks. And it was guarded by not not U.S. personnel. It was guarded by uh, German nationals, what we call LN guards, labor nationals. And they were 
it was a unit uh, that was out of Roosevelt Barracks, one of the other barracks in Berlin, and uh, they guarded all the facilities in uh, the U.S. facilities in Berlin uh, for gate guard checking IDs and and checking underneath cars with mirrors. And so seeing that for the first time was wow, we're in a different world here, uh, a little bit more high security. Um, LaBelle Disco had just happened about a year before I arrived in Berlin, and um, so they were in a heightened state of uh, security before we got there and it had recently just downgraded down to just a normal um level of uh you know keeping an eye out on terrorists and, and bombings of that nature yeah labelle disco was the one that was tracked to the libyans wasn't it it was um and and i you know, there was one soldier that i i didn't i ran into him um once yeah i think he had his ears got messed up at the LaBelle disco. So I didn't really see a lot of folks or run into a lot of folks that were actually at the disco when it happened. But I do remember someone pointing out a soldier that was actually there and had some, got a purple heart for it. Um, but uh, yeah, that was about a year before Reagan came a year before I got there. Um, so a lot of stories about those two things were going around the barracks once we got there. What was your initial extra training you were given when you arrived in Berlin? Yes, sir. We, we went to a thing called SOS, School of Standard. Everybody that came to Berlin had to go through this two-week course or two-week class called School of Standards. And it was a multitude of classes. And what it was was the JAG officer, that's the lawyer, uh, would come in, the prosecutor, and tell you, hey, listen, you know, you, you know how to conduct yourselves. And, you know, if you step out of line in Berlin, you'll be removed from the, the, the command. Berlin mainly, they really emphasized on us that this is a showcase unit. You are on the front lines. The world is watching you uh, behave yourself accordingly. Um, you know, and, and even when you're off duty, they would go into um, OPSEC, which operates security. And basically, all lines are unsecure. So do not talk about, hey, I'm going on a deployment this weekend on your phones because Ivan's on there. And they would, I think they had some commercials, PSA commercials. And they would, you would, they would be jokingly talking to somebody, hey, Ivan, how are you? You know, and just on the, just letting everybody know that, that, that most of our phones were tapped anyway. So um, you, you don't need to talk about anything military related or unit wise or anything um, military wise on the phones. Um, and um, we would talk about some German phrases um, were taught to us. Part of the class, we actually went to East Berlin for the first time. So I, within my first two weeks in Germany or West Berlin, I went to East Berlin and it was an organized uh, tour bus for all the new soldiers. And we went over um, and stopped off in the Alexander Platz. Uh, I don't know the name of it, but it's the Eternal Flame with the East German um, uh, soldier stand guard. Um, of course, everybody gets that. Uh, the Neue Wacke. Yes, sir. We all got a photo. I think everybody in Berlin's got a photo in front of that. One of those soldiers. We watched the changing of the guard with the goose step changes. So that's the first time you know I'm, I'm there. In two weeks into Berlin, I'm seeing the East German army, you know, soldiers marching right in front of me, standing next to them, posing. Um, we went out to is it Treptow, the Soviet yeah, uh, the, cemetery, the big Soviet war cemetery. Yes, sir. We went there as well. And um, and that's the first time I ran into a Soviet soldier. And it was an officer. I think I sent you some photos of those. And um, so I saw a Soviet soldier within my well, he actually was an officer and he was walking around as well. And, and I asked him for a photo and he, he agreed. And I just kind of 
wow, this is awesome. So, you know, here's your enemy. You're standing right next to the guy and I'm two weeks into my first duty station. So this is pretty um, awesome experience. Um, and then we, you know, my, my impressions of East Berlin was totally different. West Berlin, West Berlin was a modern city. You know, it was, you know, I'm from Georgia. So Atlanta was our big city. So it was an equivalent to Atlanta with a wall around it that you just can't leave the city, you know, and it was um, pretty exciting. And then when we went over to East Berlin, it's like going back in time. I, I felt like I was going back into 1950 or 1948. Um, there's buildings with bullet holes still in it um, from the war. Um, they were, um, um, you know, the, all the Trabants, uh, the, 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 the cars they drove were all the same, but different colors. I, I, we were all joking, like, how would you find your car in the parking lot? Cause everybody's cars are the same. So, um, it was just wild looking at that. And around Alexander Plus, I remember the roads are a lot wider than I used I've ever seen before, which you would picture in, in Moscow, you know, there's some roads that in that area kind of wide. Uh, extra wide than the normal traffic lanes that I'm used to, um, I guess, for their parades and things of that nature. Um, but it was really gray and dull and and just the stores were really kind of empty. And, um, you know, we heard stories that they have to wait six months before they can get their car. They have to order them. They get assigned apart- apartments. And it was just a really depressing uh, to hear how they were living and, you know, just to uh, and also to see it, just how you know, dull it looked and how gray and, and miserable it looked, you know, and um, we did eat at a restaurant there, your Alexander Plots on that same trip. Um, not quite sure the name of it, but it was a, a high end restaurant. And we were we were pretty wealthy when we went in there because we were allowed to change our money in West Berlin. I think it was about 15 to one. So we had, you know, 15 East Marks, which was looked like Monopoly money and the, the coins were aluminum. So they're not well, like you got them out of a Monopoly set or some kind of game set. You know, the, the money is so light and wasn't hard like coins or made of anything, copper or anything that we make our coins out of. Um, and um, the paper money was really small and usually had farming uh, pictures on it. And I still have a few I kept, um, but they were just just weird. And but you could get a lot for you your money there, obviously, 15 to one. So um, we ate well at this restaurant. It's the first time I've been into a fancy restaurant in a while. So I, I thought that was interesting. Um, also on our SOS tour, um, school of standard tour, we toured the Reichstag. Um, and the Reichstag at the time was just basically, um, there was pictures of it during uh, world war two where they blew the, the dome off and the Soviets were on top with a red flag. And we were actually walking in the building. And what I thought was interesting, this is 1987. And I got in Berlin around August of 1987 and we were walking in the Reichstag, and one of the tour guides told us, oh, hey, right here, this is the assembly room. This is where the two Germanys will have, when they unite, this is where their first, this is where the Congress is going to be, or their, their government's going to be in this room right here. When it was all nice, and had all the seats and stuff, like a House of Representatives or something like that, or Senate. And uh, we, we all kind of laughed, like, yeah, not in our lifetime, man. It's not going to happen, you know? you know? Keep dreaming, and um, and and. And that, I, I remember the, saying that, and, and then, you know, obviously a few years later, like, oh, that really did happen in our lifetimes, because um, I believe they did ultimately have their government there in 1990 or 92 when they, they uh, the two Germanys joined back in as one government. So, um, so that was kind of interesting to say something like that in 1987, just to give you a, a mindset of how we didn't think the the East was going to 
be free in, in our lifetimes. And that was just in 1987, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it looked like the Soviet Union was going to be there forever and the Berlin Wall was going to be there forever and that status quo would exist um, for some time. And, yeah, little did we know. <laughs> so after that, you know, uh, another thing we had to do, and it wasn't part of the school of standards, we had to go to Farshula, which was the driving school. And to learn to drive, I don't know if that was an army wide thing or is it just an MP thing. So as we drove um, vehicles on the streets, uh, we had to go through the German driving school and uh, drive with a German instructor. Um, now they worked through the U.S. Army, but uh, they had a, well, they, a Farshula school on our base, so um, you'd have to go through that course of, of learning to drive stick shift with a German instructor, and it's uh, very intense. You know, don't ride the clutch. You know, and you know, just different techniques he was throwing at us. And, and growing up in, the, in, uh, in America, I didn't really drive a lot of sticks, stick shift or, you know, manual vehicles. It was all usually automatic. So, uh, but all the vehicles there were um, stick shift. And um, back when I was telling, uh, I don't know if I said this, but um, the, the German government would provide us with all our MP cars. So we had Audis and we had some Ford Escorts, but they would my understanding, other than military stuff, the German government paid for everything the U.S. forces used and probably the British forces, too, and the French. But I don't think they would be any different, but they would pay for all of our our barracks or, you know, that kind of stuff. But anything military, obviously not. But um, like our MP cars and things like that, it was my understanding that the, the West German government actually paid for all that. So, yeah, no, it's a European thing, the old uh, stick yeah. shift the only way I know how to drive, Richie. <laughs> yeah, and well, you got the right-of-way lanes, and like you know, if you got the priority road sign, I remember that one. You, you get to keep going, even though there's a road. You know, the, the yeah. folks on the right have to stop, and it's just you know, right before left if it's unlocked. At least it wasn't UK, and you know, driving on the left. Yeah, I I, I met a British um, MP, kind of made friends with him. Um, we're still Facebook friends. Um, Richard Patton is his name. He had a vehicle shipped over there, and it was uh, from the UK. And uh, I remember he let me sit in it, and it was the weirdest thing I ever said in my life. You know, the, um, it was on the right side of the vehicle, but uh, it was um, it was just weird sitting in it. And he asked me to drive. I said, "Man, I, I'm gonna wreck this thing because it's just too weird for me." But uh, I do remember sitting in a, a, a British car in Berlin, um, and we did have some interactions with the, the RMPs as well. Um, uh, I know. Some of the folks like uh, Mike Rafferty, they would probably have more friendships with him because they worked at Checkpoint Charlie directly with the RMPs. But other than that, we really didn't have any working relation. I mean, like direct working relationship with them. Um, if an M- if an American soldier or dependent was in trouble in the British sector, which is where the Kudam was, which was the big nightlife area, um, if they were on the Kudam area and they got in trouble, uh, the German police would always be the first on the scene. They would detain them. They would call the RMPs because it was in the British sector. They would show up and then they would see they were Americans and they would call us and we would come get them and vice versa. So the RMPs came down to our barracks and partied and usually was a, a rough day. <laughs> We'd have to pretty much go on alert and run them out. But uh, they would do a lot of fighting. But um, if they came down and got in trouble or got in a car accident or something like that, then we would come in and, and be there to represent the allied forces until the um, their their actual folks could come down and take over the case, um, we did have a couple interactions where we um, we went to their barracks for like a social gathering, and then they came to our barracks for a social gathering. I, I, I participated in two of those. Uh, the first one was um, 
we went to one of the RMP barracks and we were in a big hall and, and their big thing was you have to drink a yard of ale. And it was a big, tall glass that you have to spin. Um, it has a bubble at the bottom. If you don't do it right, it's going to splash in your face. And that's where they all laugh at you because you never get it right. And so we were drinking with them and uh, drinking these yard of ales. I remember they opened all the windows in case you had to throw up or something or spit it out. And um, then we turned it into uh, a rugby match. Uh, they cleared out this big hallway and there's two doorways and those were the goals. I, I don't even know what rugby is, but we basically we just hit each other and fall down and wrestle around and get carpet burns. And um, that's basically what I remember out of that trip is coming back with a lot of carpet burns. But we had a great time with them. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War um, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. And then I remember they came to our barracks one day and we played softball with them, and that was a, obviously a unique sport for the British soldiers uh, trying to swing a bat. And, um, and then they, so we kind of mixed the teams up and, had some a picnic and, and some beers and stuff on our barracks. And then then later on, I do remember they took us out to the soccer fields and schooled us in that. So um, so they got their revenge on the, the softball game on the soccer field. So so once we got into our unit, um, we were assigned platoons. Um, I was assigned a third platoon. And the 287th MP company had multiple missions. But the primary mission was a, a combat mission. And each platoon supported one of the battalions, uh, the infantry battalions over at McNair Barracks. And then if they go to the field, our platoon would go and support them. Um, on a four-week schedule, one week we would work day shift of law enforcement. So we would go out on and patrol the city or the, the American sector. We'd have zones that we were assigned to to patrol. Uh, the second week, uh, you would be on evening shift or swing shift and doing patrol. And then um, third week, you would do night shift or morning watch um, patrol. And then the fourth week, you would be in training. And that's when you would go to the field with your your battalion if they were in the field um, and support them in the combat role that we had as well. Um, so on the combat role side, um, you know, we went to Grafenvier, Wild Flicken, over in West Germany. We call it West Germany the zone is what we called it in Berlin. So you would go to the zone to train and we would go there to support them. Um, that's where I got a shoot to snare. Uh, we qualified on German weapons there. And so we, that was something you got to add to your uniform if you qualified on it. And we would just do our combat support, which in, for an MP would be, um, we would do talk security, which is the, the headquarters. So when you set up in the field, you would have a, a you know, a, um, a headquarters where your command unit is, and we would guard that and have access control to it, or we would do EPWs, enemy prisoner of war. So if the infantry's caught people 
we would detain them, bring them from the field to a holding area for the intelligence folks to interview or interrogate those individuals. We would also do route recon. So if, if there was a route that needs to be made from point A to point B, we would uh, patrol that and set up, you know, find the ambush sites and identify those and, and, and choke points and things, just all dangerous things. You would draw up a, a route recon of it and then submit it. And then we would do escorts. And in Berlin, we did a lot of escorts. So any track vehicle like an APC, an armored personnel carrier or a tank, we have a few tanks there. Uh, we would escort them from point A to point B from Truman Barracks is where the tanks were. We would escort them to Doughboy Fighting City or to Rose Range or the two areas that we trained at. Um, so we would escort them in our Humvees, which we had blue lights on, and we would have a mounted M60 gunner on top. And we would just um, drive them from you know, escort them from point A to point B. And so with the Polizei, they would actually lead the way and stop the traffic for us because they were a little bit more recognizable. But then here we come in our big vehicles. And our other role was law enforcement. Um, we would uh, patrol, uh, do 911 call. Well, they didn't have 911, but if they someone called the AMP station or called for an emergency, we would respond to them. And um, it's kind of a unique situation in Berlin. Um, the Allied powers, the French, British, and Americans, we had total control of the city. And what I mean by that is, 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 is they actually ran the city. Um, the West Berlin government passed laws and things, but I believe the Commandant Tura of the, the three generals uh, of the three allied powers, they would actually approve things or like rubber stamp things. I don't think they actually got in their business of, of politics, but they would rubber stamp things in Berlin. Um, and as an MP, we technically could detain German citizens if we needed to. We never did, um, but we could. Primarily, um, we would just respond to any U.S. Uh, soldier being involved in anything or a dependent, which is a, a U.S. soldier's wife or children, um, or a U.S. government employee, a DOD employee. And we had authority to detain or to um, investigate their whatever was going on, you know, and um, and we would do traffic accidents, um, traffic enforcements and that type of stuff as well. Back on the combat side, um, we would go to Doughboy Fighting City, um, train there, and it was uh, always pretty much the same routine. And um, the funny thing on that one was we would go there. It's always 10 degrees colder because everything's concrete uh, in this this makeshift city. And it was divided by a, a, an S-Bond berm in the middle, like a, a train berm. And uh, the train tracks were pretty high up, so we had a big berm that divided the city in two. We had Doughboy 1 and Doughboy 2. And typically the scenario was you would hold the city and then get overrun by the enemy, what would you call Op 4. And they would take over the city and then everybody would go to Rose Range, regroup, come back and take the city back over. It was a bit hopeful, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're like, well, it, we're doing all this training. We're thinking we're not going to make it. If there's if there's an invasion, we're surrounded by maybe seven major Soviet unit, units. Uh, I don't think we're going to survive any kind of uh, uh, attack here. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. They never came out and said what our mission would be if we were attacked. You know, at my level of, of a pay grade. It never got down to me what, what would happen. We were invaded. I mean, obviously common sense kicked in as we're not going to make it, but I think we were supposed to take down all the road signs, but then we kept saying, well, and that was just a rumor that got to us. And we were like, well, you can buy a roadmap at any store. So what's the point of tearing down the signs? They have a roadmaps, you know, you can buy at any convenience store in Berlin, a map of the city. And, um, 
but we thought that was funny. But um, one of my first trainings out at Doughboy, there it's right at the the wall. When I say wall, it was a fence there. There was no Berlin Wall at that end of of uh, Berlin's limits. It was a, a it was a fence with a kill zone, but no actual wall. And uh, there was a Hein D flying, which is a Soviet helicopter, off behind it, and they had extra towers in that area to watch us. So I mean, they were watching us train, which I thought was kind of wow. They, they know our tactics, so it's not really like a secret what we're doing here and what our defense would be. So I thought that was kind of interesting of uh, of the enemy watching you train. So yeah, I've heard that from other soldiers that have served in berlin that that doughboy city was right up against the um the fence and that yeah it was very easy for the east germans and the soviets to uh observe the the training there question question i had was the the british military police patrolled the berlin wall in the british sector was that also the role of the u.s military police no if I recall correctly, we we didn't patrol the wall. We had a um, a scout unit, I believe, from the uh, one of the infantry units did wall patrol. I believe, at least when I was there, and maybe before MPs did it, but I don't recall any military police. I could be corrected, but I was there for three years, so I don't remember any um, military police doing wall patrol. But I know it was there was a wall patrol conducted and it was more of the the scout units of a, of an infantry company um that would do that so which would be their combat roles to scout out things in our in our army and if a us service person got into trouble in east berlin would you have to liaise with the soviets to uh, get them back not the actual military, not not my section of the military police. Uh, we had another part of our unit. Um, you know, I was just going over the basic part, which was just law enforcement, the combat role. Um, but outside of those platoons, we had a specialized unit um, that there, there was a few folks. I think Sergeant Yount, Yount was one of them and uh, a few others. I can't recall their names. They spoke Russian. And they were tasked with with dealing with any issues that would happen over in the east with the Russians. So going backing up a little bit, if we went to East Berlin or a U.S. soldier or government official or government employee would go or dependent would go to Berlin, they would have to check in or I'm sorry, East Berlin. They would have to check into uh, Checkpoint Charlie and at Checkpoint Charlie, they would get a briefing and they would get flashcards to carry with them. And basically it would say, listen, if you're stopped by a East German police, show this first card. And it was in four languages, English, French, uh, German, and Russian. And you would show them uh, the card and would say, hey, uh, I'm a member of the U.S. forces in Berlin. Please let me go. And the next one was a little bit more aggressive. Hey, you mu- I demand to be released at this time. I'm a member of the U.S. forces. And the final one is I request a Soviet officer to my, my location. Um, was the I think was the third card, you know, the more aggressive, you know, hey, I really need a Soviet officer now. You need to back off because they were our allies in Berlin, um, even though we didn't interact with them on my level. But um, we had a, a certain, uh, I say unit, but a few, two or three individuals that would um, be tasked with going over and defusing a situation or working it out. And then if the soldier messed up and say he committed some type of crime, uh, we have a we had a um, a law called the Uniform uh, UCMJ Uniform Code of Military Justice. It kind of follows a soldier wherever you're at. Doesn't matter 
if you're on leaving the States, you're in your unit or whatever, the, the laws apply to you as a soldier, wherever you're at, on or off duty. And you can be prosecuted under those laws. So if he committed theft over there or something like that, then he could be prosecuted in his unit um, in Berlin. Um, so that was how those situations were handled with a, a, a liaison from our office would go over there and deal with it. I don't remember a lot of them. I, I know a lot of times if there was any issues over there, it wasn't with a soldier. It was always with a dependent wife or, you know, just a, a housewife going over that shops a lot. And, and we always joked a lot. It was usually an officer's wife. So um, and they would get in some kind of, you know, just buying too much products up. And it just kind of messes up. It gets everybody ruffled up over there in East Berlin because they would try to, you know, buy the stores out and things of that nature, the crystals and the China and that kind of stuff. <laughs> Did you did you train at all with any of the British units at Doughboy City? I personally did not. Um, I do know we went to, and I do not know the name of it, but the, they had an equivalent of a Doughboy fighting city in the British sector. Uh, we did go there. It wasn't concrete buildings. It was more of, of like a German village looking is what I remember. And we went there to train, but we didn't cross, at least I didn't cross with the British soldiers in training. Um, so that's that. And the French, we had no contact with them other than the French gendarmeries at the checkpoint, Charlie or checkpoint Bravo. We had no contact with the French army whatsoever, except for a select few soldiers that went to French commando school. They went up to that. So other than that, we really didn't have, a, at least I didn't have a lot of interaction with French, um, either French nationals or uh, French soldiers. Cause we were out the South part of the city and they were at the North part. So maybe that was something. And then I heard, and I didn't know this for a fact, but I, I heard that, that the French unit up there was mainly more of a basic training unit. It's more of they train their soldiers and move them out to other units. So they probably were very isolated and you know not permanent duty stations like we were. So There was a, a British training area in Berlin. It was sort of like a mini Doughboy city, I think. Then later on in our law enforcement role, um, you know, they, we had other specialized, you know, we had a military police investigators, we had traffic investigations, we had canine, death sergeant. So there's other things you could get promoted out of your line unit. And that was kind of the goal of everybody. So after a year in Berlin, I was lucky enough to get promoted to the traffic investigation unit, which your lifestyle is a lot better. You work 12 hour shifts, four days on, four days off. There was four of us. So we would, we worked day shift and two days night shift and then you have four days off so it was a great shift to work and and at our mp station we called it a combined police station so we worked with the german polizei they were there they had an option it there i don't know the number of the option it, but they were there and they were really a lot of lifelong friends came friendships came out of that and they would do joint patrols with us so um, when we were on our law enforcement duties one of the german polizites would at least be in one of the patrol units, the one that does the, maybe a supervisor's car that goes to everywhere. And that's in case there's an interaction with German citizens. And obviously we didn't speak fluent German. So they would be there to, plus their German polizei, and they would help quell any situation as well with the German citizens if, if it need be. But as a traffic investigator, we were tasked with doing traffic investigations, radars and DUIs and things of that nature, more traffic you know, specialties. And so any accident involving a U.S. service member, we would investigate it. So most of them were German-American accidents. So we would uh, join, the, do the accidents together. The German Poles and I would talk to the German driver, and I would talk to the American, and we would both collaborate what each person said, and I would do my report, and the German police would do um, their report, and then he would submit it, and I would submit ours. But we always had a, a partner that we rode with, so that was 
awesome to ride with them because we would uh, do certain, you know, I would learn a lot of German with them. Um, he would pull over folks. Sometimes a lot of Polish uh, citizens would come in doing um, black market selling or uh, flea market type selling of cigarettes and things of that nature. And uh, I know they'd stop them a few times. And, and I thought what was funny is they took their tires on a traffic stop until they came and pay their fine. Cause a lot of times if you pull over someone, the German police can have you pay the fine on the spot and the case is over, you know, unlike here in America where you go to court, but you could pay the fine at the scene and they give you a receipt and that's that. So obviously non-Germans coming in the city, they didn't have any way to track them. So they took their tires a couple of times and took them to the option and held it until they came back with the fine money. So I thought that was kind of funny. And I've worked a few serious accidents when I was there and um, no, no fatalities, but some serious DUI accidents and that's that type of stuff. And then testifying court for that. So that was one of my, the highlight my, of my duty there was to be in the traffic unit. Four days off was just awesome and compared to other soldiers. You know, it was just, you didn't want to tell them too much because you didn't want to give out the secret that this is awesome stuff and you get pulled out of the duty, you know, and that's where I worked the night the, um, the wall fell. Did you work at Checkpoint Bravo or Charlie as well? I did. And at the time, I'll go ahead and tell you, it's probably the worst duty state or the worst duty of it all. And the, the reason why I say it now, I look back and tell everybody, oh, I, I used to work at Checkpoint Charlie. And, and you, you want to tell that story now and you're proud of it. And I am proud of it. But at the time, as a as a young person who just wants to be in law enforcement, I want to drive with a blue light on. I want to do law enforcement stuff. It, it wasn't the right it was more boring. So, uh, at the time, so checkpoint Bravo and, and I know you probably had this on your other podcast, but there's alpha Bravo and Charlie checkpoint alpha is in, um, Helmstead, uh, West Germany, right at the border of East Germany. And that's where, um, you would, if you're going to drive to West Berlin, that's the, the point there that you would meet. And there was a few MPs stationed there and they would process you to come to Berlin. And then checkpoint Bravo is the other end where they out process you coming from the West Germany or process you going to West Germany. And so they work both ways. And at Checkpoint Bravo, we would we were assigned to do that. So if you, you're doing patrol, usually the, the lowest ranking privates usually got assigned to Checkpoint Bravo because it was very remote. It's out in the south end of the city and it's on a highway. It's above the highway, um, just a, a building and you drive under the building basically. So the, the stairwell is on both sides of the roadway and then one in the middle. And then you would just sit there, and then what you did is the NCOIC, the, the sergeants in charge, they would actually process everybody going in and out. And then we would, um, as the privates, would be tasked with going down and checking to make sure they had their um, warning um, symbol, their, their spare tire, whatever, all the safety equipment they're supposed to have in their car. We had to go down and inspect their trunk and that kind of stuff. Uh, when people were coming back, we did random checks at Checkpoint Bravo. Of checking vehicles to see if they picked up anybody illegally, you know, like um, you know they picked up some East German national in the in route, which would, would would get you in a lot of trouble. So we would check those just as you know, or you know, just periodic random checks of cars coming into uh, checkpoint Bravo. So that was that. That was my experience at Bravo um, to, to be there. That you know, I learned a lot about it, you know, and then, but it was just like you didn't really do a lot of law enforcement, so it was kind of. Uh, I go to Bravo. And, and the bad thing was, and same with Charlie, is you got off shift late, too, because when your shift ended, you had to wait for the new shift to come down and get you. So you usually got off about an hour later than everybody else or your, or your friends, and they already took off to the Kudam or wherever. <laughs> you had to track them down. So 
So that was the other thing is you had to wait and work a little longer. Now, Checkpoint Charlie is a little different. Um, you could make in the same way we would check um, people going. There was more volume of folks going to East Berlin and uh, everyone had a process through there. All the allied soldiers, French, British and American. Um, and we would just handle all the Americans. And it was a little trailer building. And I, I got to go back to Berlin in 2018. And I actually went back in that same building at the museum where the outpost theater used to be. And I actually, the curator uh, unlocked it, let me sit inside of it. So it was awesome to get back into that building. It brought back so many memories sitting in that, um, the checkpoint building. But at the time, you know, you would, you could, if, you, if you're a social person, you would meet a lot of folks and, we would mess with uh, Americans a lot. American tourists would come by and they'd say, hey, what, what, what army are you with? And I'd tell them I was of the Polish army or make something up or whatever. And they go, really? Wow, you speak really good English. I'm like, no, I'm an American, <laughs> you know, and just, you know, just didn't recognize who we were. So we had a little laugh at, 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 at folks sometimes. And even though there's a giant American flag flying right there. But um, we would check, you know, uh, as the private there, there's NCOICs like Mike Rafferty and um, a few others that worked there. Um, they were permanently stationed there and they were in charge, but we were kind of like the workhorse. They go out there and, and inspect that car before they come in or, or when they come back from East Berlin, same thing. We would do random checks of their trunk just see if they didn't put anybody in it or anything of that nature. No, no big events ever happened when I was at either of those checkpoints or any, you know, any national, international incident or anything like happened when I used hear stories. And, and when I was at checkpoint, Charlie, the, um, they had the concrete barriers on the east side that would you had to go around. You know, you couldn't drive straight through because every time something happens, they get it more defensible. You know, people can't just escape over there. Before the wall fell, everyone had to be back by midnight on the, the American side. And you had to wear your uniform. So I know you had some stories about the British going over and stuff on your, some of your earlier other podcasts. But we didn't have that kind of experience. You really couldn't go over and get drunk or anything like that because you, you get checked when you come back. So it's more you had to be. You know, stand, you know, represent the United States, um, you know, to its best there. Uh, wear your uniform. Didn't wear a name tag, though. And that was one thing you didn't have to do is wear your name tag. So they wouldn't couldn't identify names and things of that nature. Um, but it was um, those are interesting duty stations. Looking back, it was awesome thing to do, being part of history, to work at Checkpoint Charlie. Um, at the time, like I said, I'm just being honest. It was like, oh, I got to work at Checkpoint Charlie. Oh, my gosh. So we, we get off late tonight or, you know, that kind of stuff. So. Uh, but it, it was it was nice, especially if you got the right sergeant there working. It'd be you could have fun and, and entertain each other. So, um, but like I said it was really busy with people coming in and out, so you really couldn't sit around too much and and goof off or anything like that. So, yeah, it sounds like it was much more a procedural job and very repetitive as well in the main. Yeah, you had to give that briefing out to everybody too, so you had to do the same briefing. That's why I still kind of memorize a little bit of it, and you give them a booklet, you know, and sign them out, and then. And then just, you know, monitor them. And if there's an issue, then, like we said, we send over those folks that can speak Russian to kind of clear it up and bring them back. So, Did you go and see some of the more remote areas of the city there? I did. Um, being an MP, you know, some nights is not a lot. Obviously, not a lot of crime would go on, which is a great thing. You don't want that to happen with soldiers over there. And you want the best of the best in Berlin. And that's pretty much what was going on. Um, but as an MP, you know, You've got an eight-hour shift, or as a traffic investigator, a twelve-hour shift. So we had time to. This is on duty, so we would tour a lot of things. So uh, one interesting place a lot of people didn't know about was Steinstuken. 
um, it's a little hamlet, little neighborhood, basically outside of Berlin, but it was part of Berlin. And um, the story um, behind it was when they had the Berlin airlift, uh, all the planes flying in um, the late forties to feed Berlin. Well, they didn't want to give up this little community that had no access to the actual city of Berlin, this little community called Steinstuken. So they had a miniature airlift there of helicopters would come in and, but when I was there, they created a road with the Berlin Wall on both sides. So you're driving. I think it's the only place that in the whole city that you had the wall on both sides of the roadway. So you would drive to Steinstuken and we get there and there was a monument there with the, the helicopter blades uh, memorializing the, the, the miniature airlift to there to keep them and um, as part of the West. And um, so that was a, a new unique place to go visit. Um, now, of course, you got a, a radio call for where you need you're needed to go do something you were in a lot of trouble because you you're far away so it, it was a way away from everything that we had um so i thought that was one of the unique places of berlin uh that we went to um glenica bridge was also an awesome place to go to and that's where we tricked a lot of soldiers i didn't get tricked but i, I heard stories and i never saw it but uh, a lot of times glenica bridge is the freedom bridge um where they did the, the spy exchanges by the bonze um so it's always closed. The gate was closed to us. And I know the military liaison folks would go to Potsdam, which we couldn't, we couldn't go to. So the gate was always closed and there was a big red, red Russian flag there and um, flying above us. And what we would do is um, go there. And, and I, there were stories that there was a white line in the middle, you know, obviously marking the boundaries. And sometimes they would have soldiers go up there or MPs, new ones with a bucket of paint, to white paint, the line and, and, and you know, the, there's some of the stories you got. I don't know if they were actually true or not, but, uh, you know, you, they would say, oh, yeah, we had private so-and-so. You had to go paint the line up there. And we were laughing at him and everything. The Soviets were laughing. So uh, but I don't know if that's true or not. But uh, that was a unique place because it's so so much history there to go down and visit it and look at it uh, while you're on duty and things. Um, now, off duty, I, w- I went to in Berlin, I went to the Olympic Stadium where Jesse, Jesse Owens and the 36 Olympics. You could see the old photos there and you're actually there looking at things. So that that was a very awesome um, experience to go in the Olympic Stadium. That was in the British sector. Uh, I think they had a base nearby, too, or one of their barracks was in nearby. And we went to the Soviet War Memorial. There was actual Soviet soldiers were lined up there uh, guarding it. From at least two or three you couldn't get close to them, but you could see them there doing their guard duty. The question that I ask anybody who served in Berlin, particularly if they were there in 1989, is uh, where were you when the wall opened? I was working night shift. I was. I uh, had indicated earlier that I worked. You know, we had day shifts and night shift. I was working 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. shift as a traffic accident investigator. So I was on duty um, when it happened. And I remember exactly um, being in the traffic investigating in the MP station, our little office in the back. Um, and just real quick, leading up to that, we've had a lot of you know, news coverage and uh, we were in an alert a few times where there was rumors that people were going to charge Checkpoint Charlie and just to do, just to see if they can get across. And, of course, um, everything in Dresden and all of the other parts of East Germany were going on and the whole history of that, you know, the, you know, the, the protests going on. So you knew it was getting and all the other countries were opening up Hungary and a Czech Republic or Czech, Czechoslovakia at the time. So you knew something was going on and something was going to happen at that point. 
And I remember sitting, I'm just going to give a rough time. I think it was 9 p.m. Um, AFM was the Armed Forces Network, was our radio station. And they broke, you know, they just played, you know, we had it on and, and it just broke in. It's, hey, we have a special announcement to make. You know, the East German government has announced that as of midnight tonight, the uh, travel restrictions for all East Germans will, will, they can travel. They, they don't have any restrictions anymore, basically. And, you know, and a few more comments about it. And then, um, then went back to regularly scheduled program, you know, like, Ooh, that's interesting. What does that mean? You know, and at the time you're, you know, I'm thinking, well, maybe that's just something, you know, they're, they always propaganda. They just probably said that, but they're not really going to do it. That kind of stuff. You, you, you know, I think that came through my head. So around a little bit before midnight, the, you know, of course we didn't have computers or I mean, they had some probably old style computers. They're probably brand new at that. I mean, the early stages of the computer, but, we didn't have computers around where we were at. We didn't have pagers. We didn't have cell phones or anything like that. We just had radios. But we had regular telephones. And the Sergeant Brown, who was at Checkpoint Charlie working the night shift, he called. And I remember he calling the MP desk sergeant saying, hey, what's going on? Because he didn't have any way to. He's, there's a lot of people gathering around Checkpoint Charlie, like media people. What What are you? you know, is there something going on? And they said, well, we don't know. And I said, well, hey, there was an AFN thing just came through. So then they called the um, command folks over at Clay Compound, which is the headquarters of Berlin, um, and called those folks, I remember, and getting information. And, of course, they were on it and um, probably, you know, getting contingencies ready. And then um, a little after midnight, one or two cars come through. A little bit later, a few more cars come through. Then hundreds of cars come through. And by the morning time, a million people were in the city. You know, it was just it just developed so fast. I didn't go up near Checkpoint Charlie because it was just too uh, crowded with with cars, and I'd get stuck up there. And and you know we were just kind of monitoring what was going on. And um, but that's how it all developed. And the next morning, you're like, oh, this is real. And every most of the East Germans lined up at every West German bank because there was a policy ahead of time before this. If you're an East German and you come to West Germany or West Berlin, you can go to any West German bank, and they will give you 150 Westmarks. And I think you can get an interest-free loan of 5,000 marks or something like that. So, um, But I know you get cash up front and, um, you know, to help you start out and, and you're welcome to freedom type thing. So they all lined up at the banks. And I don't think that lasts very long. I think they, they ended that policy a few few days later, I would imagine, because that's where everybody was lined up in the mornings. And most of them just went right back. And we were told that um, we would have to probably set up refugee camps on Andrews Barracks where the soccer field was. There was a contingency of Let's get all our tents ready and set them up because we may have a bunch of refugees coming over um, from East Germany. And, um, you know, we got to figure out where to put them. Uh, but that didn't happen at all. Actually, the opposite happened. They all just came over, wanted to look at the place and just go right back over to um, East Berlin to their home. They just want to go over and say they saw it and look at the, you know, look at it. And maybe if they had relatives still, because obviously by then, you know, we're talking what, 20, 30 years or so from when the Berlin Wall went up, 61. So they had um, probably, the relatives would be older people, probably my brother or my cousin, something like that. But the younger folks probably don't know who their relatives were in, in the West. So I, I don't know if they went and saw long lost relatives. Maybe they did, but uh, but mainly they just came over and, and looked around and went back. And then, and then slowly but surely, walls started opening up, old roadways, that used to connect before the wall went up. Now we're connecting again. 
And um, I, at that time, was married. I moved out of the barracks after a year, and I got married. So I lived at Duval Housing. So we were, you know, the, the West, uh, the U.S. Army was spread all over West uh, the American sector. So I was in Duval Housing. We were right by the wall there on the south part of the city, and it was probably, you know, 800 yards or I'm sorry, 800 feet or so from my apartment building was the Berlin Wall. And um, they had opened up a road. Um, I do have a video of a gentleman that I videotaped before the wall fell. And he was standing up there as a German. He was talking to me, you know, said that um, this road used to connect. And he grew up on the other side over there. And he always likes to come and look at these little uh, observation stands. And he was up there and I videotaped him. And then lo and behold, you know, two years later, that road has opened up where he was talking about and obviously I didn't have his name or anything, but nice to follow up with him and see how he felt about it. But they would, the East German government would put a little box um, uh, house there with a, the East German flag flying and they would open up the wall on both sides. And obviously if there was any kind of landmines or whatever was in that kill zone, they would got rid of it and made a roadway in the middle. And then those started popping up everywhere just, just for the, to alleviate all the volume of people coming in the city. Um, and, um, and all they would do is watch. They didn't check people. They didn't check your IDs or anything like that coming and going. Um, it did relax things for us. After the initial few months of that, then everything kind of calmed down a little bit. Um, then we as U.S. soldiers were allowed to go over to East Berlin without uh, wearing a uniform. And we would get these special passes that we um, – American passes – and to go over and to visit and you could do more socializing at that time. I remember going over with a bunch of buddies and went to a, a bar or two over in East Berlin. So that was the first time we did that. Um, so that was, that was real interesting to see that change like that from nothing, you know, before you had to go through this checkpoint. If you were a non-government official, you had to go through the East German checkpoint, change your, your money one-to-one, couldn't take over Western literature and that kind of stuff to all of a sudden, Two years later, you know, now everybody's going over and back and forth and it's, you know, free for them. And uh, obviously their economy is still back in the 50s and 40s. But um, other than that, the, the citizens were free to, to come and go as they wanted to. So did, did you have any interaction with the East German border guards once the wall came down? Yes. Um, of course, when the wall went up, no, it didn't happen. But afterwards, um, you know. A lot of people you probably saw on TV, they were there chipping away at the wall, you know, getting their little piece of the Berlin Wall. Well, where I lived in the South Park, they just they came and they just knocked it down with a you know a crane and just it crumbled away. And I just went with a, a bag and picked up pieces of the Berlin Wall, you know. So I was like, I'm not going to go out there and chip away these little tiny pieces. I, I got a chunk right here, and I you know collected them and um, you know kept them for key, and kept some little bit of bob wire and. Uh, and then we saw some East German soldiers kind of standing around and, and there was no wall. It was just like a, a half a wall here and it was open, you know, another 200 yards or whatever. And then we, hey, get a photo. And they come over and get photos with you. Take pictures of your head sticking through the wall if there was a hole in it and uh, just all kinds of um, great things to do um, with that. And then we would um, – then I was um, – I think Mike Rafferty helped me out. He introduced me to a Soviet guy. I don't know what he did in the Soviet army. This is after Berlin wall. And I went over and toured. I think we, him and I went over to East Berlin and we met some East Berlin police officers. I, I got some photos with them. 
you know, two years earlier, this would have never happened. And then, you know, found some Soviet soldiers and we got some photos of those guys as well. But, um, you know, it's, it was just, you know, everybody was friends, you know, at that point, you know, it's like, we're not, you know, the Eastern border government, we're not here to do stop anybody from coming and going. And you want to, and then of course, all the little, everything started going, going for sale, their entire uniforms. So right at the wall, you would see a table full of East German hats and badges and boots and jackets, whatever you wanted. They were there, helmets. So everything was started going up for sale a lot, you know, around the Berlin Wall. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a really interesting time. I mean, I, I was in Berlin during that, that period between the wall opening and the end of East Germany, and it almost appeared like everything was for sale on these stalls all around Brandenburg Gate, Reichstag. Um, yeah, and and right before, right after the wall fell, I was selected. I'm six two. They just wanted tall folks, so a few of us we were selected to take down the American flag during the ceremony of Checkpoint Charlie being lifted up. So, July of 1990, around about that time. Um, it had been agreed upon checkpoint. Charlie's mission is over. We don't need it anymore. And they're going to you know, raise the building up and put it on a flatbed truck and move it out. So there was a big ceremony. And I think uh, secretary of state Baker was there and uh, a few other dignitaries were all there. So we, um, I was on the unit to train, to take it down and we practiced. And uh, Sergeant Barrett was there. The guy who trained us, he was just off being a drill sergeant. He just came to our unit. And I think he retired as a sergeant major of the, MP Corps um, later on, but he uh, trained us and we were folding the flag and just, you know, you know just being as sharp as we can and, and practicing and practicing. So we were there we were in the building. So if you were looking at Checkpoint Charlie from where the dignitaries were, we in the, we were in the building on the left. The I think they rented a room up there, the U.S. government did, like an observation room. It was on the second floor and that's where we were standing. And then as soon as they lifted up, we were like, showtime, we're getting ready to go down there. And then um, I think there were skinheads or some kind of hooligan type folks showed up off to the side and they just felt like it would, they didn't do anything wrong. They weren't doing anything, but they were there. And they just felt like at the time it wasn't going to, it wouldn't be good for us to come out there. It just didn't want anything to happen, you know, on this international day of the whole world's there watching. So, so we never did get, make our a big debut of coming out and taking the flag down. So uh, now I will tell you this before they checked point Charlie went away, they did raise the flag there. And let it fly for a little bit, take it down, mail it off to somebody for all these dignitaries, you know. Probably they do that all types of places around the world. But they were, I remember they were raising flags, let it fly a little bit, raise it down or take it down, raise another flag, you know, just to send off to Senator somebody or whoever. So you never know who they were going to, but I, I know they were going off to dignitaries to say they had a flag that flew at Checkpoint Charlie. Oh, that's a real shame you didn't get to have your... Yeah, moment yeah. in the uh in the sun well, we, we sure I guess. could well yeah but we sure could fold a flag let me tell you so yeah well hey <laughs> i bet your bed sheets are absolutely razor sharp <laughs> that's right <laughs> when when did you uh leave berlin richie right after the um so i got there i got there august of 87 and i left July, probably two weeks after Checkpoint Charlie ceremony was over, um, I was I, I I left Berlin then. So the end of July, I think I left Berlin of eight of nineteen ninety, July of nineteen ninety. And you you said you got married while you were there. Where where did you meet your wife? 
she was a high school sweetheart of mine. Um, I went back on leave after a year in Berlin and got married and uh, went back over there, which, hey, being from being a single soldier to a married soldier is totally different because if you're the single soldier, uh, you when you got off duty, you really had to not answer your door because they always come up with extra details for the single soldiers. You're like, oh, man, we need this done or that done. So they come knocking on your door and then most of them would pop open a beer or something and walk through the door with a beer in their hand at least, you know, say, hey, I'm, I've been drinking. Can't do it. And they sometimes they don't care. We still need you to move this wall locker or go out and move, do something with the Humvees or, or whatever. So you, you, that was the danger of being a single soldier. You would, uh, some of your, um, your downtime could be taken away from you if you're just kind of the hey you syndrome. Hey you, come here. Uh, being a married soldier, we lived off the barracks in an apartment, um, which is obviously rent free. Um, so we, so two years, two of two of my three years there, I was married, um, and uh, had a great time there. Well, every soldier I've spoken to said that Berlin was one of the best postings, if not the best posting they ever had. And I 100% agree with that. It, I'll tell you this, the friends I made there are lifelong friends. We've had several reunions since. I've, I've been to three reunions that we've had for the 287th MP Company. Um, and we all, on Facebook, is how we kind of reconnected over the years and um, got some uh, Facebook pages together. And I know they're having a reunion this weekend in Columbus, Ohio. I just wasn't able to make it. But um, in 2010, we had a really big reunion in Kansas City, Missouri. So we've stayed in contact, you know, either by communications or, you know, emails and Facebook and that kind of stuff. Or we actually had a couple of physical reunions. Uh, at least I, I'm sorry, more than two, but um, I went to three of them and they were really great to see those folks. And you just pick up where you left off at. In comparison, my next duty station was in Hawaii. I couldn't recall half the people that I stationed in Hawaii, which is more recent in time with me than I did in Berlin. It was just so many memories were made and historical things happened while we were in Berlin, right before our eyes. We didn't know we were part of history at the time. We just knew we we're in a unique place, a unique city where the Soviets are your allies. And, you know, it was just a unique place. And then the wall fell. So uh, the saying I always said as I was there before, during and after the Berlin wall. So, so you, we got to experience all three phases of that. So that was a very good experience, at least when I was there. My my time period there was just covered all three yeah. of those phases. So. Yeah, and you're a good friend of Michael Rafferty, who was in episode thirteen. Yeah, we're we've been lifelong friends ever since uh, Berlin. We were great friends there. Um, a lot of good stories. We were planning both to go back, but COVID hit, and um, we had to postpone it. So we're planning him and I by ourselves to go back to Berlin. I think. Hopefully it's coming March 2022. If things in the world get a little bit better, you know, we're planning on going back and reminisce, do a little YouTube videoing, and you know just have a good time there. Yeah, well his uh, his YouTube video is how I first discovered him. That great video, yeah, he filmed. Yeah, I remember he when he did. I borrowed his camera a few times for. I made some films just for my, you know, just walking around for the family back home. But uh, I do remember him doing that that day. I wasn't in the videos or anything like that, but I remember him and Beamer uh, planning to do that uh, video the whole day. And um, so it was very, very fun to watch that and a lot of good things on there. So they're very comical too. Well, yeah, it, it is, but it captures a moment in time that is, is unique. And I think that that, that's why I really like the video because it's, it's just very spontaneous and, 
and fun, I guess. But yeah, it does and, give you a good at, idea of what Berlin was like. Correct. And at the time, he was just doing it. I think they were just doing it to send it back to their family. Just say, hey, this is Berlin. This is things that you could see up here and not thinking, hey, this is going to be something that's going to memorialize and you know that 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 great time in history you know so not realizing that because we all at the time thought this was going to last generations you know and everybody's going to experience what we're experiencing you know coming over here with the dealing with these germans and the soviets and that kind of stuff the wall but um obviously not so it changed very quickly yeah i've just had a quick look it's had thirty-two thousand views on youtube which is uh, make some money. I'll I'll have to try and uh, get get that increased when we uh, publicise your episode. <laughs> okay, because that seems a disappointing number. I'd expect that to be yes. higher. So yeah. need to do more work. Yeah. Being a single soldier in in Berlin, and I presume all soldiers would have been spoken to about this. But you were you warned about attempts to, you know, get information out of you. For via German civilians or people in bars and things like that? Just generally, um, it was always on the public service. We didn't have commercials like they do in the States or anywhere in the world, you know, like advertising things. It was more pro- public service announcement. They were military made. Um, you know, don't be dirty with your, your in, in your barracks room because your roommate's not going to appreciate it. And then, of course, the um, – being secure, not talking on the phone because all phones are unsecured and don't talk about any troop movements of that na- nature. Um, they're, they're, if anything was given out, it was just generally saying, listen, don't talk about anything. Be careful who you talk to. Assume everybody's uh, Stasi or KGB or, or something of that nature that they're out to get information if you don't know them. Even if you do know them, don't talk about it. Don't even talk to your fellow soldiers. It's more of a cross the board. Don't talk about military stuff anytime unless you're in your unit talking to your command um and that was kind of the general um thing given out to all of us it wasn't more of a a one-on-one like hey specifically single single soldiers you're going to be more vulnerable to women um i mean they just basically said be careful you know even the women that you meet i mean it was something generally given but nothing specifically just to single soldiers versus married soldiers so if you then had a relationship with a a German national, were they then vetted in any way? Do you know or, or not? Unless. No, I, I, I knew lots of soldiers who had German girlfriends and um, nobody really, there was no vetting system or anything like that, that nature. You just, you're at the Kudam, you're at the Irish pub and you meet a girl and she becomes your girlfriend. There was really no follow up of, um, you know, we need it. We need to screen this woman and, um, or this lady or whatever, we need to screen her for uh, to see if she's uh, a true West Berliner or she you know, from East Berlin or whatever. So nothing of that nature was out there. It, it would be it, it, to me, it would seem almost an impossibility to have a system set up like that to vet people's girlfriends or girls they meet at night, especially just regular soldiers. Now, if you had a, a sensitive job, I would imagine it would be a little bit different for those folks that has, you know, yeah, if you're working at the T-Berg or somewhere <laughs> like that, then... Yeah, because if you, you know, looking back, if you just grabbed a soldier out of the infantry or an MP or whatever, we're going to have very limited knowledge. You, that person may have more knowledge than we do about everything. You know, they're going to already know what units are at what base, how many people are in each unit. I mean, they're already going to know that. Now, they may try to get that information out of people, I would imagine, just to see what you, you're willing to give up. Um, you know, information wise, and then they can go into more detailed stuff or maybe use you to 
you know, I'm, I'm sure that's how they turn people, but I, I've never had any experience in that. I just knew I didn't talk to strangers. You know, I just stayed to myself and my friends and that's, that's the best way. That's the best, you know, meet people, be friendly, but, but not go into details or go to their place or their, their apartments and hang out or whatever. Just, you have to be very, you know, careful because you're in a big city too. You know, things, bad things happen other than information given out. So you had to be, you know, have your wits about you. There are photos and videos illustrating this episode in our episode notes. Look for the link in the podcast information. Now, this podcast would not exist without our financial supporters, and I want to thank one and all of them for their generous support. If you want to help us, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thanks very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information